I've been obsessed with getting the sound that's inside my head out into the real world. And through various experiments, I've arrived at the conclusion that using some of these AI techniques is a really great way of doing that, or at least using them to augment what I'm already doing in the studio. This is Justin Shave. He's from Sydney-based production studio Uncanny Valley, and he's the composer behind our podcast's theme song. I was pretty excited to hear from Justin because, as you might have guessed, he made this song using AI. I was interested in exploring what kind of drum beats I could get the AI to firstly spit out. And so I provided the large neural net model some source drum beats at the right tempo and asked it to continue what it thought might come after this drum beat. So it spat out some funky stuff. And uh, one of those drum beats in particular forms pretty much the the basis of the, the track. What we worked next on was the hook of the song, the little earwormy bit that gets repeated over and over again. What I did for that was to find a little bit of sort of 40s or 50s orchestral music. I took that entire recording and placed it into our software that we've been working on for a number of years now called Mimu. It will listen to that sample. It might be able to make cuts in it and swap it all around and do interesting things with it rhythmically. I thought I would experiment with getting the baseline also written by an AI. And for that, I used a couple of freely available tools from the Google Magenta website. You provide it with MIDI instead, which is um, symbolic musical information rather than audio information. So notes, durations... Hello there. There was a lot of archival material provided by the CSIRO, which we could mine and find little tasty nuggets of audio to insert. So that was pretty much a human process, that one, I have to say. <laughs> a layer on top of all the AI stuff. Hello there. Welcome to Everyday AI, a podcast series by CSIRO. I'm John Whittle. Inspired by our computer-generated theme song, I prompted an online AI poetry generator to write a haiku for me about artificial intelligence. This is what it came up with. The computer program, thinking for itself, is this the future? Now, I'm no poet, but personally, I wouldn't call this a breathtaking piece of art. Not to mention that it hasn't exactly got the rules of a haiku down pat. But it's a free, simple tool that uses the same technology as systems that are currently being used to write novels, generate visual art, and even write Grammy Award-nominated pop albums. I think what we learned was that it's a really amazing tool, or can be, in the right hands, and that it's certainly not as passive as people would think. In this episode of Everyday AI, we'll hear how an AI helped to write a Grammy-nominated dance pop album. We'll ask whether AI could one day have legal rights as an inventor. And we'll learn about the psychology of creative thinking in our human brains. 
After all this, hopefully, we'll have an answer to the following question. If anyone can jump online and get an AI system to make artwork, write poetry, and even make music, then what separates us from the machines? There's music that you listen to because it's your favorite and it reminds you of a time in your life that's important or it connects you to a community or a scene. And then there's music you listen to to fall asleep or music you listen to to work out or music that you listen to, you know, when you're on hold or in an elevator. Music has different purposes. And maybe AI will come along and take the mantle of some of those jobs, you know. Maybe an AI can make better meditation music than I could. But an AI is never going to write a song that I would write. Claire L. Evans is a musician and writer living in Los Angeles and one half of the dance pop group Yacht. We're listening to music from the album Chain Tripping that the band made using AI. Normally we would just, you know, write down song lyrics in a notebook, jam in the studio, do what feels good, do what feels right, which is often habit, you know, things that you're used to doing. And at least in this process, we had to interrogate every single step of the way. And when it all came together, it was like this strange, hyperdimensional, futuristic puzzle. But at the end of the day, they're songs, and they feel like songs. And we just got there in a really strange way. So let's unpack this hyperdimensional, futuristic puzzle to see how much the AI is actually creating here. The tools that Claire and her band had at their disposal were pretty much what you and I could find online, so they were fairly limited. Especially for non-coders, which is what we are. So we had to kind of scotch tape together an assortment of different various open source and freely available models that we could find, plus um, bring in some collaborators who understood the technical side a lot more uh, robustly than us. They split the songwriting into two components. First the music, then the lyrics. We didn't want to make the music difficult. We wanted to make a pop album. We wanted to make an album that sounded like something we would make and that would make sense within our catalog. So in order to do that, we tried to find a model that we could train with uh, our own music. The model we ended up finding was a model called the Latent Space Interpolation Model, which I won't get into the specifics of, but essentially it's a tool that allows you to take two different melodies and explore a high-dimensional mathematical space that exists in between those melodies. The melodies that this model produced were extremely strange and very unstructured. Often we would put into relatively cohesive melodies and get some long, sprawling, strange, non-repetitive, you know, non-linear-sounding kind of melody. We did that over and over and over and over again. We essentially collaged all these different melodies together to structure into songs, like, like a puzzle, sort of. Then assigned all those melodies to different instruments, which we then performed live in the studio, which is its own amazing challenge. You know, how do you perform music physically that was composed by an entity which has no body, which has no relationship to the body? Um, it doesn't necessarily think about what feels good to play or what's even, you know, possible to play. So lots of strange tempos, strange you know, reaches on the guitar and the bass, strange vocal leaps. But we did it. Plastic paradise, sky. The lyrics were composed um, in collaboration, actually, with a creative technologist named Ross Goodwin, who does a lot of um, machine learning-generated poetry and 
um, sort of generative literature. Uh, we worked with him to create a model that could generate new song lyrics based on our own back catalog, which is 82 songs and all those words, and then every other song we've ever loved, because you need a huge amount of data to train specifically a text model like this. So we ended up creating a two million word text document, which included lyrics by every band we've ever loved, you know, all the music that our parents listened to and that we grew up listening to, all our friends' bands. Basically this master document of our musical, textual, lyrical influences. We fed it into this model, which would then generate new lyrics at a range of different temperatures, which means um, different kind of essentially riskiness or strangeness. This concept of temperature that Claire has just mentioned is important in AI. Once you've fed your AI system all the training data, be it song lyrics or Picasso paintings or every TED Talk ever given, the temperature is what controls how close the output is to the original data. There's an interesting connection here to the concept of serendipity. That feeling of discovering something wonderful or fortunate purely by chance. Serendipity in lyric-generating AI like this would be like finding a concept that was relevant to the user at just the right temperature, so it's not obviously close to the original, but not too wacky. When you run a machine learning model, it can take a lot of risks in the guesses that it makes, or it can take very few risks in the guesses that it makes. So you know, you give it a word and the next word it's going to guess is either going to be a word that is totally strange or a word that's kind of sensible. And you can kind of twiddle with that with that knob and make the AI make take bigger risks and do stranger things. Or you can turn it down and the AI kind of turns into this highly repetitive, very, um, I don't know, almost like lizard brain uh, kind of thing. It's just a strange stranger. standing there. It's just a sudden town, another brick in the sky. There was a page in the text document that we were working with where the AI just kind of got stuck in a loop and just started repeating itself for hundreds and hundreds of pages, you know, like line after line after line. And what it was saying was, stab a cop. <laughs> it, was, it was saying stab a lot of things. It was saying... Stab, 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 stab this, stab that, stab this. It was in this loop where it was just making these imperative commands about stabbing. That was like the, that was the thing it was stuck on. And it's so shocking and I would never write a song that says anything like that in it normally. But there was something about seeing this page of text that just said like stab a factory, stab your hair, stab your back, stab a cop. That it was like, this is really kind of punk rock, you know? I would never write this, but it's it's got this visceral anger to it. And, you know, on one level, it's like, oh, my God, the AI, what is the AI doing? You know, what is it saying? It's scary. But, of course, it's just repeating back to us, you know, what it thinks we're saying. So it's, I think, quite an interesting commentary on, I don't know, the violence of modern culture or something. But ultimately, we ended up including some of those stab lines in the song. So there's a, there's a little riff in the song where I say, stab a, stab a fast car, stab a factory, stab your hair, stab my back, stab a cop. And, yeah, I mean, that's something I never would have written on my own. And, and yet here I am singing it because an AI suggested it. We 
we used an AI transcription service in the making of this podcast that turned Claire's recorded interview into written words. Sometimes it stumbles and comes out with some pretty funny stuff. When it got to this bit, the AI transcription turned the word stab into stop. Now, I'm not sure what that says about the conservative nature of podcasting compared to punk lyrical AI. I'll let you decide. So we know from our previous episodes that these AI models are built to mimic the way we think through problems and make decisions with our human brains. So what is it exactly that our brains are doing when we make art or music? And are we that different to these artificially intelligent systems? When you actually look at kids, what we see is that even tiny babies already seem to have really abstract ideas about how the world works. And yet, it's not as if they just keep those ideas. They revise them, they change them, they go out and do experiments, they observe, they look at the world, and they change what they think about the world. Now, the question is, in detail, how can you design an algorithm that could do any of those things? That's still a very challenging question. Alison Gopnik is a child psychologist and member of the Berkeley AI Research Group at University of California, Berkeley. Alison studies how babies and small children learn and how we can apply that learning to machines. Thank you, Alison, first of all, for joining us. Can you tell us a little bit about how do babies and children learn and how does that compare to what we call machine learning in computer science? you know, kind of classic way that a current machine learning system works is you show it a whole bunch of pictures from the web of cats and then a whole bunch of pictures from the web of dogs and you label all the cats with the word cat and all the dogs with the words dog and then you give it a new picture and see if it can label it as a cat or a dog. And although they're quite good at, say, distinguishing cats from dogs, they don't generalize very well. So if you give it something that's really different from the cats and dogs it's already seen, they'll make mistakes. And on the contrary, if they have something that, say, has the same texture as a lot of pictures of cats, but isn't actually a cat at all, they might call it a cat. Now, that's kind of exactly the opposite of what two-year-olds do. So two-year-olds don't have terribly much data. They just have the data from the few people and toys and puppy dogs and things that are around them. And yet they're incredibly good at generalizing. They're very good at making accurate predictions and inferences about completely novel situations, things they've never seen before. Do do you have a sense or do we have a sense of what's missing from the AI systems and what we should be putting into them that's not there now? One of the great puzzles that we're trying to figure out is when we look at kids, what happens is that they're basically exploring all the time. They have one utility function, which is be as cute as you possibly can be, which they're extremely good at maximizing. And as long as they're so incredibly cute and adorable, all their immediate needs are going to be taken care of. And then they're just free to explore. In a way, the very fact of childhood, that we have this protected period where we don't actually have to do anything except be cute to get taken care of, we can just explore maybe nature's way, evolution's way of solving that explore-exploit problem. So having a system first have this period where it it can do very, as a computer scientists say, high temperature, do lots of bouncy, noisy, weird stuff, and then have it narrow in on, remember, there was a problem here, let's solve the problem. Here's Justin again, the composer of this podcast's theme song. My daughter wanted to 
create a logo for her YouTube channel, which is called Cats Drawing Carrots, and she wanted to have a picture of a cat drawing a carrot. Uh, I showed her some Dali to him and typed in Cats Drawing Carrots. It came up with a bunch of images of cartoon cats drawing carrots. And then she took one of them and adapted it into the way that, that she wanted the picture to be. So that was very much an example of augmented creativity, which I think we're going to move forward with AI in this, in this area. The program he's referring to, Dali, creates artistic images from text descriptions. So you could tell it to make something like an armchair in the shape of an avocado or a painting of an astronaut performing a puppet show in the style of Picasso. Or, yes, cats drawing carrots. When it comes to the question of whether creativity is an exclusively human trait, Justin is dubious. Whether machines can be creative, that is a deeply philosophical question, uh, which I'll, I'll attempt to answer. I believe the answer is yes. I mean, it's easy to place humans on a, on a, on a creative pedestal and, and say we are, we are creative beings. We love to feel these emotional feelings about what we create. But, you know, at the end of the day, our process of creativity comes from kind of the same process that an AI um, experiences. You know, you, you feed in inputs into your brain. Your brain mashes all these inputs around and, and learns patterns from these inputs. You know, we listen to lots of music. We, we look at lots of pictures when we create art. And then we we use those inputs to to be creative and, and, and make something. If we call that creativity, then we'd have to call what the AI does creativity as well. I think it would be terribly conceited to think that there was anything truly special about us. We are, at the end of the day, are just biological machines. And most of the tasks that we've that humans could do, that we've set our mind to, we've got computers to do. Being creative is one of those things. This is Toby Walsh. He's an AI researcher from the University of New South Wales. Despite just knocking our human ego down a few notches there, Toby does believe that some biological machines are undoubtedly more creative than artificial ones. If you think about you know, who are the great artists, you know, people like Picasso, it was because, you know, obviously Picasso was technically brilliant, but, but equally, you know, what was brilliant about Picasso was his ability to invent new styles. He pushed forwards the language of imagery um, and changed completely how we actually depict things and change the metaphors, change the, the language with which we um, paint. And so it's interesting to ask the question, if you're, if you're building a system like this, which is just based upon lots of trained data, whether it will actually innovate in those ways, come up with truly new ways of thinking about images and, and, and depicting the world. Probably the best way to think about all of this is that it's not just the AI system doing it all on its own. It's more of a collaborative endeavour between the human and the system. Think about those image-generating AIs like Dali. You give it something to learn from, and then it presents the image you want, more or less. Before this interview, I had a go with a system called Crayon, which is very similar. You just enter some free text and it will generate an image for you. I typed in, 
Give me a cartoon depiction of John Whittle interviewing Toby Walsh for a podcast. And it came up with quite a nice image, actually. But the two figures didn't look anything like myself and Toby. So I wanted to ask Toby, is there a future where these kinds of tools are used more like artists' apprentices rather than completely taking over from artists? I think you put your finger also on a, on a really good point. Actually, a lot of the success is actually reflecting the intelligence of the person who's providing an appropriate query, um, appropriate label to the that it generates from. I think that the hope is that, that these tools will augment our ability to be artistic. So you could take someone like myself, I'm not particularly um, a, a, a good visual artist, but perhaps with such a tool, I could do some things that, that um, I would not otherwise be able to do. So hopefully this will democratise some of the ability to be creative. Are there any downsides to all of this? Uh, what are the implications for things like copyright if this, these systems are just kind of grabbing bits of images from the internet? It's surely a bit ridiculous to say that an AI system can be an inventor, isn't it? I don't see why it's ridiculous to say an AI system can be an inventor. Um, it would be terribly conceited to think we were the only we're the only people who are ever going to invent and that we might not invent machines that that might not be smart enough to invent. And indeed, you know, there are there are some tantalizing examples of of systems that have been used. A, a system that was developed at MIT that's that's come up with a new antibiotic that humans didn't come up with it. One of my favorite examples is um the first AI invention in space. There was a uh, a very strange looking aerial that was invented by a genetic algorithm that was flown on the SD5 space mission. It looks really strange. It looks like literally you took a paperclip and unwound it a bit. It's all these strange lengths and angles. Not something you would imagine a human would invent, and yet it has the appropriate uh, electromagnetic characteristics to be able to receive and transmit on multiple frequencies at the same time that um, does supposedly works you know, more effectively than anything any human came up with. If an AI can be an inventor, then let's suppose that there were revenues from that invention. Who gets the revenue? I don't think that's very problematic. Though. When you, if you work for a company, you typically don't own in your inventions, even though you're named as the inventor. So maybe it's going to lower the barriers to invention, where maybe the, the computers will come up with too many inventions and that will swap the patent system. Equally, it may raise the barriers to invention. Uh, the definition of an invention is that it's, it's um, not obvious to a person skilled in the art. Well, if we've got computers that are much more skilled in their art than we are, then maybe things that were patentable to us will be obvious to machines, and therefore maybe they won't be, meet the requirements to be non-obvious anymore. So uh, we, we do have to think, I think, carefully through whether this is going to change what we can and how we invent. Toby and I are not legal professors, so let's bring it all back to AI and art. People certainly used to think that AI systems couldn't be creative, and that creativity was one clear thing that separated human from artificial intelligence. But these days, we have AI Eurovision Song Contests, AI artworks exhibited in galleries, even AI-written novels. But could machines one day be able to truly replace whatever it is behind creativity in humans, or even just in children? I mean, I myself have two seven-year-old twin girls. 
One of them is a very keen artist, and she comes up with really interesting kinds of abstract art that looks, at least to me, in a biased parent kind of way, like it could be exhibited in a gallery somewhere. So what's the difference? I put the question to Alison Gopnik. The problem with creativity is you want to be generating something that's new, but you also want it to be good, <laughs> to be relevant, to to tell you something about the problem you're trying to solve. So in music, for example, you want to generate something that's kind of unexpected and interesting, but also that is musically satisfying. And again, the, the great problem in the way that creativity uh, seems to work in, in artistic enterprises is that on the one hand, you sort of start out generating lots and lots and lots of possibilities, but then you also need to sort of have a critic who can say in your own mind, you can say, yeah, that possibility was really interesting. That one, not so much. Um, and I think what AI could do is help to generate those possibilities, although it's still a question about uh, the fact that humans and kids seem to be better at at coming up with the kinds of possibilities that will turn out to be interesting. An important part of this process is the human capacity to make decisions and the human capacity to determine what sounds interesting or what sounds good. So we're working with all this, you know, really wacky output, all this stuff generated by machines that, you know, on, on its face, on its own, is kind of nonsensical and bizarre. And we are looking for meaning in it and we are forming meaning ourselves by associating things together, you know, taking one line from over here, another line from over here, putting them together with a melody from over here, and the end result is something completely new that communicates something, not exactly what we would communicate normally when we were writing a song, but something something strange and new. For Claire, the fact that AI is being used more in the music industry does not feel like a threat to her job or the music she produces. AI for her is just the latest tool we have for pushing music into new places. I think one of the most valuable anecdotes from history in terms of thinking about this, and I know it's a much more simplistic thing, but you know, when synthesizers and drum machines came on the scene in, you know, in the mid-century and in the 60s and 70s, they were perceived as being technologies that would replace and displace a lot of creative workers. And in fact, the British Musicians Union tried to ban synthesizers in the 80s because they believed that it would put session musicians out of work. And it probably did. But at the same time, an entire generation of artists took those tools, and instead of letting those tools displace them, they made those tools an essential part of their own practice. And in doing so, they created new kinds of music that didn't exist before. They created you know, hip-hop and techno and post-punk and, and all the most interesting music of the century. Once again, it seems that when it comes to creativity, AI is a tool that works best in collaboration with us humans. Just before we wrap up this episode, I want to leave you with one last treat. Here is our AI theme song fed back into Jukebox AI, the machine-generating music tool, to see what it would make of it. I think it's a bit spooky, personally. Producing a computer program.
I'm John Whittle. Thanks for joining me for Everyday AI. In our next episode, we'll hear how artificial intelligence is being used to aid doctors and mental health professionals. My work on chatbots has sort of somewhat exploded in the last seven years, ranging from Parkinson's disease, autism, dementia, a chronic pain, genetic counselling, smoking sensation. Everyday AI is a CSIRO series created by me and Eliza Keck. Alexandra Persley is our supervising producer, and Jess Hamilton is senior producer from Audiocraft. The Audiocraft production team is Jasmine Mee Lee, Cassandra Steeth, and Laura Briley Newton. We'd love to know what you think, so please subscribe to Everyday AI and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts.